Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. It's like sprinting a marathon. Can you imagine sprinting a marathon? You kind of feel like you're going to die. <laughs> You know, I felt I was going to die. I was like, I'm going to probably die in this for sure. Yeah. Fuck it. It's like, oh, I didn't know that they broke up in the middle of the shoot. And that's why I couldn't get so-and-so to show up on time anymore. And you're like, oh, okay. And like producers have to handle that shit. Cause like they have to shield you from it. Cause you just can't know. There was so much shit happening. I think behind the scenes on mine that I had blinders on. Like I was like one of those, like, you know, those those horses in Central Park, it was just like, just keep walking forward. Just keep going forward. Oh, yeah, all that shit's like, all that shit's falling away. Like, next, oh, yeah, I'm just keeping going forward. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers. And learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Michael Thielen. He is a Clio and Emmy award-winning commercial and feature film director. His work has been shown theatrically, on broadcast and cable television networks, as well as top-tier film festivals such as South by Southwest and Tribeca. He has directed projects for brands ranging from Amex, Coca-Cola, Ford, and BMW. His debut feature film, which he directed and co-wrote, Emily, opened theatrically in 2016 and has since become one of the top-rated thrillers on iTunes and Netflix, having received critical acclaim from the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and many other sources, earning it an 88% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Michael is also a location-independent entrepreneur. He is the founder and owner of MTP, a film and television production consulting firm, which has overseen the production of over 50 original shows and 20 films for Google, as well as producing content for Universal, Warner, and Fox. His team has overseen the production of Google's premium streaming content that is currently competing with Netflix and Amazon. He has scaled his company to a team of over 20 people, 
and he can run his business and manage his team completely remotely while traveling the world, which he has done quite prolifically. He's been to at least 20 countries, and we are now in Lisbon, Portugal, recording this interview in person today. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. So good to have you here, my man. You and I have hung out in a few different countries over the last couple of weeks. We were on the Nomad Cruise together. We hit the Canary Islands. We had a day in Casablanca, Morocco. And we're now hanging out in Lisbon, Portugal. Just to set the scene, we have opened a beautiful bottle of Portuguese red wine from the Douro Valley, which we're going to be drinking through during this episode. So cheers to you, my man. Cheers, brother. Yeah. Good to be here. Let's start off with just sort of your background to give folks a sense of where you grew up and how you initially got interested in the creative side of film, commercials, that whole thing. How did that, how did that come about for you? Yeah, I grew up right outside Chicago and then moved into the city in high school and just spending my younger years always with those big hunky VHS camcorders, right? You remember those? So I'd always make, like, I would say an old school version of those SNL parody commercials uh, or SNL digital shorts before that was even a thing. They for sure were not as good, but I mean, it didn't matter to us. We just had a blast doing it and we would do it as much as we could. And then kind of reality sets in and I got to go to school and college and, and get a job and all that. So that kind of endeavor kind of faded in terms of, you know, going to a prep school, they kind of want you to go to a good college and go to a good college and they want you to probably do finance, which also was interesting, but it just, at the end of the day, it looks like it wasn't my actual calling, but it was stuff that really helps me till this day. So yeah, I got away from it uh, for a little bit, but it was good to dive back in at the right time and... Yeah, I'm just glad that I did make the move when I did. And so you're talking about like when you were a kid, you're talking about those giant camcorders that we used to have and like hold on our shoulder and walk around filming stuff on VHS tapes. Yeah, exactly. And you you know, you wouldn't be editing as a six year old, so you'd have to record, stop, and then turn around and then record, stop. Like just all based off the visual memory or like copying stuff that you see on TV. It was fun. Yeah. That's awesome. I feel like as kids, like we're really, you know, we, we put our creative energies out there and we get passionate about stuff. And then a lot of times, as you said, real life, quote unquote, sort of sets in. And then there's all these kind of social obligations and, you know, expectations and things like that. But you were also in, actually legitimately interested in, in the finance and trading and that kind of stuff side of things, right? In terms of your choice to go in that professional direction. Yeah, no, exactly. I think I wanted to trade since I was in high school. Every father that I knew, it's a predominantly male field that was doing it at the school I went to. They were just, their hours were great. It was like eight to three and they were always home. Like when we got home and they always just, they were really cool guys and they always were able to, you know, afford nice things in terms of going like to trips and they travel a lot. So it was always fascinated about the other side in terms of like seeing other families that have benefited from trading. And so Ultimately, I thought that was something I wanted to pursue other than going the kind of standard finance route that a lot of the friends did, which they're doing really well too in terms of consulting or iBanking. It's just the trading end always seemed um, more fascinating to me. And what was that environment like? And maybe set the scene a little bit in terms of the years that you're talking about that you went in, what you were trading, where you were working, and give us a glimpse into what was that environment like? Yeah. So you kind of had to knew someone in order to get into the CBOE floor. So the Chicago Board of Options Exchange. I was actually a market maker, you know, for a period of time, but you have to clerk for about a year or so first. 
and you have to know someone just to even clerk, and then you're someone's bitch. Like you are literally back in call of uh, of the market makers. I mean, we were hazed like no other. And at certain points, it was tough to take, but it's not an easy business, and it is a business, and it is the real world. This wasn't like hazing in college. This was like they wanted you to know how hard this was going to be, and that mentally you got to stay strong. Shit's going to hit the fan. You're going to lose a lot of money probably before you're going to make a lot. So they really hazed all of us. And I thought to me, it worked in terms of getting us ready to actually start trading. And the floor itself is literally like a, I would say it's very similar to a sports locker room in terms of there's a lot of joking around, a lot of pranks, because again, there's a lot of downtime. Like not every single moment has you, you know, buy, buy, sell, sell. It's, It's not like that kind of hyper fast environment. Now it is sometimes. And when it is, there's nothing like that. You get chills, almost like you got to have it on autopilot because you have to think so fast. And that means you have to have prepped so well beforehand because you have no idea when the storm's going to hit. You typically know at the beginning of the day and the end of the day might be a little busier, but you don't know if someone's going to come in with a massive order that you have to take down. And so just always being hyper aware of your surroundings and the environment itself was filled with a bunch of practical jokers that were honestly half of them seemed like they could be stand-up comedians they were so funny so it made actual work life enjoyable you know in terms of just going in every day knowing that you're going to hang out with some friends that are all competing for the same thing you are but yet you got to go about it your own way and i i would imagine that in addition to the adrenaline and the excitement it was also very high stress very high pressure environment how did you sort of navigate that and you know, deal with the stress and the pressure of the environment? Yeah, I think ultimately that hazing I'm talking about really preps you to curb that type of excitement that I was mentioning earlier because when the shit does hit the fan, you actually can't get super excited in the moment. You just have to stay super disciplined or you're going to make decisions based on emotion versus actual like analysis. So you need a sociopathic mentality to that particular work because Imagine if you woke up and someone just told, you know, said you've lost 50 grand today. That would probably make you pretty stressed out. Let's say, I, say you lost 500 grand today. Both need to be treated the same, but then you say the opposite. What if I just told you you made you know, 1.2 million today? Like, are you going to start spending it? No. What if you made 20 grand today? Or what if you made $300 a day? All of those need to be treated somewhat similarly because if I made 1.2, I'd be a lot happier than 300. <laughs> but you also have to be extremely disciplined with your emotions because- the higher you get or the lower you get, you just, you're not going to make it. That, that's gambling then. Because people used to, everyone, even today, they think traders are gamblers. And floor traders, market makers are the opposite. Good ones. And what of those sort of skills and lessons and techniques for the emotional management and, and, and other things, do you think that you developed there that were then applicable to the other future aspects of your life when you went back into the creative side of things, when you went the entrepreneurial route, when you started building businesses, because those are also really high stress in different ways, but high stress environments. So what would sort of the lessons or the personal growth takeaways that that you were able to extrapolate to other areas of your life? Yeah, that's a great question. It dovetails into this quite nicely in terms of starting your own thing. You got nothing. And so you got to grind. And when you start getting clients and you start doing well, or you aren't doing well for a certain period of time, you can't get too low or high. Like I, you know, when I had some success at certain times, because it's a different industry and I'd start my own business, I would get so high. I mean, not literally, but I would, I would just, I mean, it was just the best feeling, but then knowing, okay, but that's just one job. 
that's one project. You don't know if that's how long that's going to go. Like you just, you got to slow down. And so trading really helped me in terms of the mentality. So I, I didn't, I never got super high or low. I was able to keep a level head and just know this is awesome, but I need to find what the next thing is. And then also, hey, this has been a slow part. It's okay. Just keep hustling because you're gonna hit some kind of pay dirt because you know you're good at this and you're working 24 seven and grinding as hard as you can, eventually it's gonna pay off. And you know, so far so good. And can you talk a little bit now about what was it that made you decide to do the transition away from trading and to go back into film and production and the whole creative side of things? Yeah, I mean, to be blunt is I just wasn't a good enough trader. <laughs> but, the, but then um, the other side of it was I had an opportunity to actually produce something visually for a disease called cystic fibrosis. And that went really well. And based off of that, I had created some other videos and I also just loved doing it and I didn't know if I could make money doing it though and that's that's a hard thing to balance but soon thereafter I did create something that NBC picked up as a daytime show that was called Taste and from there it was just never an issue in terms of it was just now I'm just hitting the ground running as hard as I can. So what were the just step by step in terms of the transition process because I feel like there's a lot of people that are in a job Right. And they're doing it and maybe it's okay. And maybe they're making decent money at it, but it's either, it's not where they're really called to be, or they're not passionate about it. They think they'd like to do something else. You know, they're more passionate about something else and they want to take a different path. They want to pivot. They want to transition for you. When you transitioned from trading back into the video production thing, what was that process like for you? Did you know, in terms of when you felt that you wanted to go that route, what were you doing? How were you transitioning at the same time you were working at your job? Were you doing stuff on the side? You know, what was the actual transition process like for you? Yeah. So I was trading and I made that video and it did well. And that was great. I realized though that trading world was not going to be long for me. And I don't think that was the right fit in terms of just, I'm not like a quant. I do think I'm somewhat smart, but I'm not as smart as like the MIT and Stanford guys next to me. I also kind of knew it was all going to end up upstairs. And most of those smart guys are working as hedge fund, either traders, consultants, or owners of their own. So that's great. And I'm sure they're doing well. The rest of us would have been just left to the side. And if I was there 20 years earlier, that's a different story. So I kind of saw that as the writing on the wall. And the fact that I was able to do a project that not only made me happy, but seemed to be well received. I just, I went all in. Essentially, there was a bit of an overlap, but I essentially was kind of unemployed for a whole year on unemployment. So, I mean, it wasn't like I was, again, we all like to condense time in interviews, but it was a grind. I mean, I grinded for a whole year and ever since then too, until, well, even this last trip, I was still working. I actually have never taken a full vacation. So I want people to listen to this and say, if you do your own thing, don't ever plan on taking a vacation. I mean, that's the other thing. You could take days off, but I still, in 14 years now, I am—I probably haven't taken a day off. Like, I'm still thinking about it, even on a Saturday, Sunday, or even on a trip that, you know, Matt and I met on. And so that's one thing people should take away is, oh, how do you do this so then you can have all this time to travel the world and everything's great? It's like, yeah, but in the back of your mind, when you have a company and it's successful, you're always thinking about it, literally. You know, I grinded for a while and I had nothing and I was living on unemployment as long as I could. And I just kept my head down and every single day was just trying to 
to come up with ways of creating content that mattered. And when I finally was able to do this presentation pilot, NBC bought it. But I mean, that was after a long period of time of doing and thinking nothing about that. People say luck, it's opportunity meets skill. And I just happened to have the right skill set that met, you know, the eyeballs of someone over at NBC and they bought it. And it was a small little show about food and wine that was great. I cut my teeth from a documentary standpoint and I learned a lot. I also learned how to manage, essentially, we were show running this thing at 24. So I had to manage budgets. I had to manage editors. I had to manage, you know, a whole production staff. So, you know, as much as I was directing, I was doing more the show running duties, which is managing a bunch of people, running a company, essentially. That's the other thing is every one of these projects that this is why I love them is almost like starting, building, and then wrapping an actual company because it comes from your brain pitching it to a client. Then you have to immobilize upwards of 50 plus people for X amount of time. And then it's got to scale down to like 10 people and then finally like two people and then no one. And you have to do all that within X amount of time. So there's a lot to ramp up and then collapse in terms of being efficient with your time and money so that you can do a project creatively that makes sense and then also fiscally it, it pays off. So. so, and you're particularly interesting, I think, because a lot of people are very, let's just say creatively talented and they're creative minds, they're artists and this kind of stuff, but that in no way correlates per se with them being a good business person, with them being a good 100%, entrepreneur. 100%, 100%. But you have been, you are both a talented creative in terms of writing, in terms of directing, in terms of your creative vision that you're able to, to, to do as an artist. And then you are also an entrepreneur who has been able to build a successful business. Can you talk about, I guess, the differences between those two things um, uh, that you just agreed with me on, but then also how you personally have chosen to and figured out how to merge them for your life? Creatively, you know, I used to think, oh man, if I just could just do creative stuff, that'd be great. But I would be lonely if it was just knowing me. And some people are cool just all doing creative. And I think directing isn't just one creative. Like Some people can think of it that way, but it is really wearing a lot of hats and being able to manage time and essentially kind of money if you know what money actually means on set, as well as the creative and, you know, the other artistic aspects. So for me, it's it's really always been a hybrid. Uh, creative side is super exciting, but it never exists without the actual budgets and the time and the scheduling. So I don't know. I've never, you know, I'm not a painter, you know, of something that I can just go out and just paint and just uh, or a musician, which I envy those people because I think that's an impressive creative field. But when it comes to content or filmmaking, it's such a collaborative effort with so many different people. It's kind of excited to work with these other artists. So you actually can thrive from their creativity. Like when a DP tells you about, you know, how they want to light a scene and you get super excited. And then as a director, you're thinking, how, how long is that going to take? <laughs> and then you're thinking like, are we going to be able to get all my shots though? And, you know, then a production designer comes in and is like, I want to do all this. And you're like, holy shit, that's amazing. And you're like, how much is that going to cost? <laughs> I know that's a producer side, but even a director is like, can, can I do that? Because is that going to take away other aspects of the process that's then going to pigeonhole me when I'm trying to edit this thing? And it's like, well, you really wanted that waterfall. And it's like, oh yeah, I guess I did. But that then left you a day short of this. Or So I always kind of approach this hybridly. Like I think at least the way I direct things, it's, it's from a hybrid standpoint. I'm always thinking about time 
But at the same time, it's so exciting to come up with the creative and and think about the psychology of these characters that you're, even if it's a commercial, there's still character there, you know? And I want to talk, I know you've done super low budget stuff and you've also done obviously high budget studio stuff. And so maybe just starting from the very beginning, if, you know, your first project that was bought by NBC that you just mentioned, which is really what launched you, if that was a super low budget thing, can you talk about, you know, what the actual process was like for that in terms of creating something of that value that it's going to be purchased by NBC on the budget that you had at the time? What was that like? How did you do that? Yeah, I think it helped having a distinct visual style that felt fresh at the time. I think everyone does this now. I'm not saying I originated it by any means. I ripped off Tony Scott left and right. So, uh, and he was one of the people I looked up to. So I didn't reinvent the wheel with the style at all, but uh, I think it was that mixed with, this was like Food Network wasn't as big as it is now. And there was no Chef's Kitchen, which are um, which is an amazing show. So it was kind of a predecessor of that. Not that by any means our stuff looked as good as theirs. We also didn't have as much time. We had about an hour with each chef and wine expert, but we knew how to be efficient with our time. We had an excellent DP. It was very much run and gun docu-style. So, I mean, our approach was, I mean, to be honest, we kind of tried to create a consistency to it as much as we wanted it to be. We'd love happy accidents, and that was what we would always strive for, but that's what they needed to be because we had to go in and we knew this is exactly how we need to shoot this because otherwise without a plan or without some kind of consistency, we'd have so much footage and we would have, you know, we just didn't have the time or budget to sift through all that and try to create a story or something compelling enough that people would want to watch. So that was my mentality is think up something creative based on the content of that person, like a really famous chef. We do our research. We think about what do we actually want to get from this chef and then, you know, sit down, ask really good questions. I had an amazing host and she was an EP on it with me as well. Jen Weigel. Her dad was actually a sportscaster, like the local one, which at the time, the local ones were way bigger than ESPN. And so she already had a pedigree and she was so good on camera and still is. I mean, Jen's great. So her and I would really collaborate together in terms of how to approach this. She trusted me with the visuals. I knew she was really good at like pulling stuff out of people and being very personable like yourself. So once we came up with that strategy, then it was about how to execute, but how to execute on a consistent basis. I know it sounds like a factory and it sounds kind of like, ooh, but it, it wasn't. It was still, you just have to know like that your guys know exactly, guys and girls know exactly how to approach each situation so you don't have to relearn it every single time. Right, and then after you had that first success and you sold the show, can you talk about what it meant for you, what that demonstrated that you were able to do that and sell it? I mean, was that the first, was that like a, a big kind of threshold for you to pass? And then what was what were your next moves? What did that prompt you or springboard you to do next? Yeah, I think... It definitely was big in terms of feeling like somebody actually liked what I was doing. But this was no runaway hit, let's be honest, people. I mean, if you Google it, I don't even know if it's, you know, Googleable. But so it's still a small show, but it definitely propelled me into the next phase, which is like big one-off things, like big concerts, 20 cameras, 30 cameras. And that's where a lot of Universal and Warner stuff came in. And, and I happened to be doing a lot of the higher-end content for especially places like Atlantic. And I still work with them to this day because I just have great relationships with some of the people there. But, you know, we'd film people 
from Twenty One Pilots to Bruno Mars to Ed Sheeran. And we really focused a lot on music, but not music videos. And then, you know, based off that, we ended up doing a lot of like one-off television specials. And it went from there to working a lot with our branded side, which is where Google comes into this. And next thing we know as a company, I'm pivoting to strictly provide internal production service oversight for a company like Google. And while they're creating their badass team that they're going to create around my smaller team. And they did. They surrounded it with really good people. And that's where that kind of transitioned to where I'm at now from having, you know, a staff of one or two people to now of upwards of, you know, 20 plus and a team that oversees so much content on on a daily basis. It's just been a whirlwind, but it's been great. So sort of step by step, can you talk about as an entrepreneur or when you were aspiring and starting to become an entrepreneur and starting to build a business and starting to get more clients. You you created something, you sold it to NBC, you had your creativity validated through that. What was your next step in terms of actually getting those clients? So if you were going to do something for Bruno Mars, you're going to do something for someone like that. How did you personally secure your next, you know, client, your next business? How did you do that? Yeah, that's a good question. It's all based on relationships. Your, your work will speak for itself for the most part. But that work will introduce you to other people and then people will want to work with you based on your work kind of, but really on a relationship. So 90% relationship, 10% of the talent. I wish it was the other way around. But um, And you have managers and stuff like that that help try to cultivate the awareness of your abilities. But ultimately, it's about if people want to work with you. And so you have to meet as many people as you can and you have to charm them and you have to be as genuine as you can because people can tell if you're full of shit. All my clients know. I like I don't bullshit any of my clients. They're very good people. I don't think I can I honestly can say I don't think I've ever worked with a client that I didn't like. Now some of their clients maybe were a little bit hard, harsh to deal with, but it's a relationship game. I mean, maybe that's cliche, but it's in a lot of industries, but especially this one. But obviously the content really does speak for itself in terms of their seeing such a breadth of work that that's where we ended up just succeeding is there's an opportunity there. We take all these opportunities very seriously because you never know. When we were working with even Bruno Mars, we shot his first ever showcase in LA, like super tiny. And then he's performing at the Super Bowl three years later. And he's amazing. He was a talent like from the word go. And you're like, oh, same with like Ed Sheeran. You don't know how big these opportunities are could become other than if I was shooting this half, you know, Super Bowl halftime, which you know we are not, but would it, would we like to? Sure, that would be interesting. But at the same time, it's all these opportunities. You just never know how big they can become before you even start shooting them. So you have to take, for me, I just took everything very seriously. Not like, oh God, who's this Ed Sheeran guy? And it's like, no, I love his music. Maybe he's not as you know as big as he is now. And so we had like a whole series called The Live Room. And uh, he was in this little studio uh, in Chicago. And he was pretty big at the time, but like not as massive. The guy couldn't have been any cooler. But it's just like working with people like that and projects like that, that you have no idea how they're going to go. And they just end up kind of almost mushrooming like your career in terms of certain aspects. And that brings awareness to you. And then you meet more people. And there you go, meeting people. It's all about meeting more people. So the step-by-step process is meet more people. 
Be good at what you do, but keep meeting more people and then try to get them to see the stuff that you do. And I mean, th- that's the combo, I think, for almost any industry, but definitely the one I'm in. And can you talk a little bit about the entrepreneurial mindset that you had to actually build and scale a business that you don't have to you know, actively work in every single day yourself, right? Because I feel like one of the things that people fall into is sort of the self-employment trap. And whether you're a creative or you're whatever it is that you do, you do the stuff and you put in the time and you get paid for it. So you you know, you do this and you get paid for it and then you wanna do your own thing and okay, you can do your own thing, but you gotta put in the work and then you get paid. That's very different from having an entrepreneurial mindset where you're building systems and processes and building a company and hiring people to run things and managing them. And so can you talk about for you along this journey, where did the vision for MTP come from and the vision to build it and scale it to the extent it is now? And what were those steps like for you? How did you gradually build a business out of this? Yeah, it's a great question because a lot of our um, artists especially actors, they have like, a, they call them a shell company or whatever. And that's essentially why I formed MTP is I was directing. It was like, I would rather have you pay my company. And that's where it stops for, I, I, would, I would think 90%. It's like, oh, you just pay the company, not me. And it's a smart way of doing it, by the way. But ultimately, I just got more interested in servicing clients in, in more than just one way. And as a result, we kind of pivoted in the last four or five years of just really looking into production services and oversight and from a consulting standpoint. And so the last four years, really, I pivoted and I went away from just having a company that was essentially overseeing the shoots that I would do personally as a director. Then I would be look at it from the standpoint of an EP and how can I look to hire specialists that I've either worked with or have been referred to me. And that's kind of how I built this team is this team is full of, I consider all-stars and they're just really good people though. And if you build a company with all-stars that really like each other, you definitely can take a step back. And that's how I've been able to be, you know, location independent. And when it comes to, you know, my particular team. And what was the the, the the process for beginning that, though, right? Like, you're solo at the very beginning of this thing. You're a creative. You're a director. You want to start doing stuff. You want to start putting a show together, putting content value together. And then when you start building the business, what is your first hire? What is your second hire? Right. How do you go about the actual business building process? It's all about necessity. So what I saw is there's a necessity for the client to have a certain... They asked for a team. They didn't know how big or what the team was supposed to be. And so I built it out of necessity and it was based on professionals that had already done it. And what I mean by done it is they were coming from the other side. My team is essentially a bunch of production executives and I only hired though from people in the production world. And I typically still do. And then the client insulated my team with amazing leadership and people with just thoughtful ideas. And they're also just really nice people like the actual leaders that Google put in place, I think that's a big reflection of my team is that we reflect the leadership that you know Google has put in place. And as a result, it's kind of like a little family. And ultimately, I'm not, you know, I was there on a daily basis at the very beginning and I've been removed now for a while, which is now what makes me truly location independent. But it was only based on the amazing leadership from a client standpoint and the fact that I was able to bring a team in of specialists that were open to that kind of environment versus, I mean, these are people that were coming from 
typically kind of telling people what to do. And now they are essentially, they could try to tell the other side, which are the vendors, the production uh, service vendors, what to do, but they don't. They try to work alongside them because that's what our leadership wants. So I've just been blessed to have a client with great leadership skills that really that translates into a cohesive team that I've put together. It's been very successful to date in terms of the work environment and the communication that my team has with them. And it's just gotten, you know, bigger and bigger because there's more trust in me and more trust from me to them in terms of like, I know I want to bring in more people to work for people like them. And that's not always the case. Again, I don't think every client that people listen to this are going to fall into the same category as Google because Google hires really smartly, but they did and they continue to do that. And they treat my team members like they're a fellow Googler. And that's important. Can you talk a little bit about specifically what Google is doing now and the production you guys are overseeing in terms of the YouTube premium and some of this stuff that's coming out now in terms of the premium streaming content? Yeah. So I think about four years ago, this all started, but now it's starting to bubble up to its own thing. It always ramps up and takes a while, but they have amazing leadership at the top overseeing, I think, some of the fun, smarter shows that are coming out on the streaming platform in general. Cobra Kai was a big hit. And if you haven't a chance to watch it, Matt, you should watch it, especially if you like Karate Kid. It's essentially, it's the Karate Kid 20 years later. So they take Ralph Macchio and, uh, and the, you know, the guy that played, you know, Johnny, sweep the leg, Johnny, like, and he's, uh, and the writing is so good. And the show is so, just so well-intentioned as well in terms of its And they have other shows on there too, a lot of good unscripted stuff. And they just, like I said, they're making really good moves, I feel like, where they're really going and they're making a mark, but they may not be a household name in terms of competing directly with Netflix. But I mean, everyone knows YouTube and whether they know the YouTube premium or not, they will. It's just a matter of time. But if you actually check the shows out, they're just very smart. And it just goes to show with the leadership of the kind of, you know, stuff that they greenlit is just, yeah, again, they're, they're surrounding my team with some of the smartest minds, I think, out there. And it takes some time. It takes Hulu a lot of time. It takes Netflix 12 years before they started doing anything real. Like, let's be honest. And, you know, Amazon just threw it. And now they're both throw just a bunch of money at content. But Google doesn't do that. Google has probably one of the, you know, tighter budgets and, you know, whatever that budget is. Like, I don't even know. But it's a lot less. And they do so much more with it. And they take on, at least what I know, they're not taking on a bunch of debt. You know what I mean? And so we won't go down that rabbit hole of like that business model. But the point is, is I feel like my team is at precipice of a a really interesting digital streaming platform that to me seems ready to take it to that next level and compete with the people that are trying to spend billions. I mean, I think that's that's interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting how all of the original series shows the quality evolution of those shows you know it's interesting i was you know i sometimes find myself in these different nomad circles and of course there's a giant age range in the nomad circles and stuff like that and sometimes when i'm when i'm talking to people that are like much younger right like early 20s kind of age range right i'm like you know before the late 90s i mean almost all television you know dramatic television anyways was horrible you know i mean like there were no actors that would like want to be in a television show if they could be in a movie it was clearly the substandard genre of you know that you would only be in if you couldn't be in a big big feature film yeah whereas in like the late 90s when you had hbo come out with the sopranos and then they came out with the wire and then they came out i mean this changed the whole concept of the potential 
for yeah. what an original series could be and that it could be as good or better than a movie because instead of two an hour and a half, it could be 13 hours long and you could do these character arcs and develop these plots. And if the acting and the writing was as good or better than a film, then why wouldn't you do that? And sure enough, you know, all of a sudden Netflix said, hey, we want to create original series. And now Hulu, as you mentioned, I just watched Looming Tower, which was one of Hulu's first original series where they really put serious resources into the writing and the acting and the directing and everything. And that was quite a show as well. And so I'm so excited. And now all these A-list movie stars want to be in the TV shows. Because that's where a lot and of the that, best content's coming from. Well, and all these A-listers are working with Google. Check it out. Will Smith, Jordan Peterson, Weird City. He's EPing it. That's one of his ideas. Will Smith did the jump. The A-list talent that I would love for one of my films is easily doing one of the YouTube shows because they know, like, to me, I, I mean, they know that's the future, man. I feel like the eyeball's already there. The eyeball's are already on YouTube. It's just about, hey, can, why don't you shift a little bit to the left here sometimes? And Because they also want to support all of their endemic, like actual YouTube creators. They're very, it's, it's talked about every day. It's not like, oh, let's just try to th- think of our own premium stuff and good luck to the rest. They are always number one preaching. You know, it is all about their actual people on the platform. But if, again, but if a Will Smith can come in and do something different and do something different in terms of, uh, like he said, he jumped, he, for his, I think it was his 50th, he bungee jumped from a helicopter in the Grand Canyon. Are you kidding me? Like, and it was all over YouTube and they're streaming Coachella right now. You know, it's just, and they could do a lot more than I feel like a Netflix. So they're doing stuff like streaming Coachella right now, which is something that Netflix can't do. And Amazon's trying to get into um, as they're doing some Thursday night football stuff. But again, it is interesting to see these A-list people. It's exciting. So, but the... I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Film side that you just kind of mentioned is, again, where most of my creativity lands today. Yeah, I want to definitely uh, talk about that as well because I know you have won. You, you know, you've won Clio's uh, for some of the commercial work that you've done. You've won uh, Emmys for some of the for some of the shows that you've done, and then you've also now have your first theatrical debut in terms of a feature film, which I'm super excited to chat about as well. Let me first ask you though about the commercials, and then we'll go into the feature film stuff. How did you land clients of the caliber, the Fortune 500 caliber? that you landed to do commercial work for? How did those relationships come about? How did you build those? Yeah, I think, again, we said earlier, but it is, you know, based on the work and relationships. So based on those relationships, I think is 
how I got almost all of that work. And a lot of it, all of it's really some kind of long form content in one way or another. And that's where the Emmy and Cleo came in in terms of doing this unbelievably cool interactive campaign for the state of Tennessee based on a relationship of someone that used to work for Warner and now has started his own thing, sold back this really cool idea to shoot at three very unique, iconic Tennessee locations. These artists, we would shoot them front to back, and then we put up this double-sided, almost look like just these, these flat screens, but putting them together, it looked like the actual person was standing in the square. So when you're in the front of the screen, you could see them performing, and then you walk around to the back and you see behind them. So it literally looked like they were you know, there virtually, but in HD. It wasn't like one of those hologram things. And the catch was is they could actually see the audience. So they could say, hey, I'm in Tennessee, but this was like Chicago. And they'd be like, hey, you in the red hat, what do you want me to play next? And they would freak out because you're like, what? And the fact that you could go around to the backside and it looked like you were looking at them from behind. So it looked seamless. It was a really cool campaign, man. And we won, a, we won those awards on that. So I think, you know, based on work like that, word of mouth and then relationships in terms of how I got work like that. And it's like, I never thought when he called me, he's like, hey man, do you think you could pull this off? I was like, let's do it. I don't know. I bet, of course I said yes. But then you're like, I don't know how we're gonna. <laughs> and it was like, literally the only, you need a certain bracket for this, like to hold the camera. Cause you have to put the camera a certain angle, like a specific angle. And there's only two brackets in the whole United States that have it. And the first city we did this in, cause you had to do it in three of them over three straight days. The bracket didn't show up and there's only two. So we had one that worked and the other one, like we had to just improvise and we made it work somehow. And then the bracket came in like four hours later. So we had it for the other two, but only two brackets, which just seems bizarre in the whole United States had this exact thing for the degree that we needed for the cameras. But that's, that's what you deal with. That's what I kind of love and hate at the same time. The producer me hates it so much. The director me kind of loves it because it's like, all right, I'm going to figure out a different way to do this. But the producer side wins out a lot in my head where I'm like, what the fuck are we going to do? And like, I start wanting to freak out. Like, I wish there was, I thank God there's not a thought bubble that follows me around on set because I don't think anyone would ever like me because it's just, it's so tough to stay calm in situations that are constantly fluid. And that goes back to my trading days, I think, is you're just, you gotta, you gotta stay the course, but you also have to be, you're a leader out there. So people will reflect your energy. So if it's negative energy you put out, it's negative energy you're going to get back in. And I'm not really into like too much of that kind of speak, but I do believe in energies. And I do believe that you have to stay calm as a leader and you have to you also be have to hard worker. I feel like if you're lazy as a leader, then everyone else thinks you can be lazy too. So that's kind of my philosophy on, at least the short answer of my philosophy on set. Can you now talk about your film, Emily? I'm super excited to get into this because this was your theatrical debut. You co-wrote and directed the film, released in theaters, super, super popular now on Netflix, on iTunes. Uh, people can watch it anywhere and has gotten incredible critical acclaim from all the top sources and is currently sitting as an 88% positive critical reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, which is 
not only an incredible accomplishment for any film, but I think particularly the genre that you're in, which is the the thriller, almost horror kind of genre, that is so rare and unusual. Uh, It's just, it's such a standout. So I wonder if you can take us just from the very beginning. I mean, just the whole story for how did this come about? How did you conceptualize it? And just the writing process kind of all the way through from the beginning. Yeah, I met the writer, wrote this with, well, it was actually a short film idea, like a short script that someone that I had hired to work on other projects with just showed it to me. And I was like, this is amazing. We should really, you know, push forward with this. And so from a story standpoint, that's where I kind of took over. And that's kind of how I do all these, uh, you know, we have a couple, more than a couple other projects right now that are all in development, but it's the same process where it's like, is this story been done? So we do some research to make sure the story is actually original. And a really messed up babysitter coming in and think about taking one of the kids. It's, it's never been done. People will say hand that rocks the cradle that didn't take place over one night. There's like this movie, French, amazing French movie called the inside. It's, it's not the same thing it, by no means. So it is actually an original film uh, with a really simple premise. That's really scary as shit and can happen to anybody, especially now in social media where you just assume whoever shows up is that person. If, if it's someone new, right? You're just assuming it's them. And based on that, we were able to hook some really savvy producers that took a leap of faith on someone that hasn't done a feature. So hats off to them. Then I approach all my films this way is very analytically in terms of what the structure is of a story I want to tell. So it all starts out almost like a, I got to create, it's like an architect, like I need to create certain pillars, right? And a lot of people have different, you know, shortcuts for this stuff. And there's Save the Cat and there's just all these different philosophies and, and they're all good and they're all right in their own way and you just have to make it your own. And so you populate it, you populate this story with like a beginning, middle and end and some in-between parts. And then for me, I start to think about where the characters in the beginning, middle and end and where have they, where's, what's their arc? Is there any real arc? And does it feel like a manufactured arc or is it something that actually is based off the character? And that's difficult to marry those two. Like Story uh, is another book that's great about film structures. And there's just there's actually a ton on YouTube too that are just absolutely great at breaking this stuff down. But I break it down from an analytical standpoint. So as much as I want to be creative on it, there's a lot of, same with architecture, like there's so much beauty in it. And you're like, oh my God, you're so creative. But there's so much math and so much other elements like that make a building or a bridge or whatever so beautiful. And I really think it's similar to film. Like you just don't come up and, and the idea is just there. There's all these small, almost mathematical, mathematical or tactical elements that add up into one hopefully great feeling at the end that you've learned something or experienced something. So that's my mindset at the beginning is to start off with a structure. And then we populate that structure to go a little more in depth. And then once we have that, then there's a vomit draft. And you just get it all out and it's shit. It's always bad. But it's never that bad. You just always you know, think it's the worst. And then you just grind out through every scene as you go through all the way to the end for that second draft. And then you could start showing it to people, or I think you can. And then you get notes and you start making adjustments based off of maybe one or two set of notes And then typically you're ready to have actually, you know, managers, agents, actors, whatever, read it. And then you have to have producers that have faith in it. will find funding for it. When it comes to a feature standpoint, I'm purely a director at this point. I'd like to produce certain things, you know, if I get behind it. But 
all the stuff we're developing for the most part, you know, is me as a director and a, and a writer. But I also like working with writers. I fancy myself definitely more of a, a director that would like to produce bigger projects, but I write out of necessity. I think what makes a project interesting for me is that it has the nuts and bolts and characters and or arcs, one of the three, hopefully maybe two of the three. You never get three out of three. Like Spielberg barely gets three out of three, you know? Um, so the top tier director is always going to get the best scripts, and so sometimes then we have to go in and kind of rewrite from scratch or at least from page one and collaborating with either the writer or just taking it on yourself, but taking the same approach. I always get right in. I break down either the current script or a new script and go through the whole process again. For me, it's just a means to telling a story that I want to tell as a director because I feel like it's something that people will enjoy. I don't get too esoteric with my content because I actually just... I want to watch stuff that I love, and I love a, a lot of different things. I even like some of the more esoteric like movies, but I don't think that's ever really going to be my style. I, I want someone to kind of feel what my characters are feeling. So if they're feeling what my characters are feeling, which is uncomfortable or awkward, all the things that I feel on a daily basis, then I think I did my job as you know as a filmmaker, and ultimately I've got a really dark you know sensibility. So hence Emily, yeah. It's not the it's not the most family friendly movie ever. That's for sure. Can you talk a little bit about your writing process? So once you select a project that you're super excited about, and you're gonna write or co-write or substantially revise a script, and that's the mode that you're in, how do you go about that writing process? And also just in terms of your workday structure. I mean, is this something that you will just like? binge on and totally immerse yourself and put your other, you know, work to the side while you're doing that? Or do you kind of like have like just certain blocks of each day where you do it periodically? What is your writing process? How do you produce? How do you write a great script? So I think the process of of starting a new project, especially when obviously it has to start on the page, it all boiled down to, to me, what's the hook? What's the character? Like, what about the character's are unique or interesting or relatable or something that's going to make it worthwhile for me to try to tell their story. Because if I have no idea what these characters are or what they're trying to be or say, like, I just don't, maybe that's not the right project for me. But then I also want there to be a hook to the overall story. I actually like stories that have some kind of hook to it. I mean, again, there's other people that, other filmmakers that are able to do kind of meandering films that somehow land somewhere and, and connect with people in an audience. And I think that's amazing. I kind of like something that has some of a, of a hook that, that will keep you going, that has stakes. And so the other thing I look for is where, where are the stakes? What's important? Why do we care? Why are we watching this? Do we want to turn it off after five minutes? Cause you haven't really established any kind of characters. So, I mean, get out's a great example of just the characters in that are so rich and you just want to keep watching and I don't even think you know what the true stakes are until, you know, deep in the movie, but because he's created such great characters and it turned out to be an amazing film. So I, I think the same philosophy in terms of what are the characters about? What are the stakes? How do I structure this in a way that makes sense to me and that I come out with, a, you know, an end result that feels satisfying? And then I fill in the blanks and then... I, like I said, I do a vomit draft and a second draft and the notes draft, and then I start showing it to, to more people wide. But in terms of like how I structure my day around it, I never dive so deep into something where that's all I'm doing the whole day. I mean, it'll get a couple hours in a day, but then I have other things to do. And ultimately, those other things also inform probably some of these characters because I'm doing other things that 
I'm interacting with different types of people and potential character aspects of these people that could make it into the film. You know, someone I'm talking on the phone of customer service could all of a sudden be like, oh, you know, that person said this or that that kind of would make sense for this character. Like, whatever it is, it's small. I, I really like the smaller things in life to inform the things I'm trying to write because I feel like that's who I'm trying to write for is everyone, not from a general standpoint because I think that's super lukewarm, but I mean, it's the small idiosyncrasies of all of us where it's like, oh, I never even noticed that. So I do a lot of people watching. So in other words, I'm kind of a creeper (laughs) without actually being a creeper. But I I just, I look a lot at a lot of things and I just wear a lot of sunglasses so people can't see my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot of things that go into a film. And I feel like sometimes there can be a really good script, but it's not maybe cast properly or it's not directed properly or it's not edited properly or whatever it is. and And it doesn't come out well, or there's great actors in the movie and they attach incredible talent to it. But the script or the story is not good. There's all, it seems to me that movies fail for so many different reasons and that to actually get a movie released that just succeeds on every level and is able to get that 88%, you know, on the tomato meter is just so rare. It's so unique. So when you look back on the whole process, you look at the writing, you look at the directing, you look at the whole, you know, uh, the, the casting and the production and the acting and everything. I mean, can you talk just about how you were able to put all of those pieces together? Because it just seems like there's so many components to making an amazing film. And if one of them fails, like the whole film can fail. Yeah, I think very well said and I think extremely true. And that's why it's always super impressive to me that anyone can make a film because there's all those elements. So you think, oh, I got Brad Pitt in my film. It's going to be great. I mean, not every film that he does is great. Or Quentin Tarantino is going to direct this film and it's his writing. And I mean, a lot of people think all of his films are great. I don't think all of them are, but he's extremely talented and he gets A-list people. And I just don't think every single one of his films is, you know, as good as other ones that he's done. So that's a very wise observation from someone that isn't doing this. So all I can do from my standpoint is just do the best at each thing that I can, like make sure I hire the best cinematographer that I can and the best production designer and get the best words is on the script and do some sort of rehearsal and try to get the best actors that I can. And then you just got to make a film and you know, nothing ever is going to be bulletproof. So I know they try to make all these temple movies essentially bulletproof. Cause I feel like a lot of them, you know, seem to be kind of a producer's baby than anything, but I'm sure, you know, the directors do a lot without a, without a doubt. I know they do. I just am saying there always seems to be a common trait, which is the same producers, different directors, same producers. And then the movies kind of feel somewhat the same. Recently, they've been, you know, changing up and taking some like comedic directors. And I thought it's been effective and Guardian of the Galaxy and Thor are good examples of that, where the directors are like inherently really smart about like timing and comedy. And, not just action, but it's like jumping without parachute and you just got to hope there's something down there that's going to break the fall. Because if you knew that you had the parachute and it was going to go down exactly like that, then it probably wouldn't be as exciting, but you just never know. I I wish I could tell you, even on the short form stuff, it's, it's, it's like a microcosm of it, but it's very similar. You do have a little more control and there's, you know, not as much as in terms of a film. So it comes out typically somewhat the same, but a film, you just you just got to ride the wave of what you've created and just stick to your guns 
and hopefully you have producers that want to make the same movie as you and uh, and you can trust them and they come out the other end and you'd end up with a movie that you kind of thought you were going to make. But yeah, there's there's no answer to that. It's just, there's so many, and it's not if one thing fails because actually there's a bazillion things that are going to fail on a movie. So it's not, oh, that that failed or that failed. There's always a bazillion failures, but there's also like a ton of happy miracles that no one talks about that hopefully you caught on camera. So yeah, I think it's balancing all of that and then getting to the end and and then that's what you have. I don't think there's, yeah, that's the scary thing about making film is you never know if it's really going to be as good as you are thinking it's going to be in your head. Can you talk a little bit about productivity tactics and how you structure your work days you do a lot of stuff i mean we just talked about the creative stuff you're doing you're writing you're directing you're on set you're doing all of that you're also building relationships with clients or maintaining relationships with clients you're managing a team you're running a business you're doing a lot of stuff can you talk about how you structure your work day optimize your productivity do you have morning routines do you have you know, things like that. What does your day look like to do everything that you do? Yeah. Typically I have a meeting with a development executive that works for me that we get on the phone right away and we talk about a bunch of stuff. And, you know, I try not to check my phone as soon as I get up, but it does happen. And I I try to actually get some workout in the morning going. That makes me kind of feel, I try to get up early enough where I can get a workout going, especially if I'm on East Coast, because my West Coast clients then won't really be affected And that way I just feel healthy and more aware of what I need to do. And then I dive into the actual work, which again, goes in spurts an hour here, an hour there, unless it's no. And then there's some, there are some days where you can't get a workout in because you're like, I'm going to start this. And it literally is nonstop, whether it's the phone emails or focusing on certain things about the business or a script that you just can't get away from. You just didn't even realize. And next thing you know, it's eight o'clock at night. And I'm not a big night owl worker. I don't work at night. I don't work like till four in the morning or 2 a.m. or any of that. Like I'm just not, I'm not productive then. So I've never done it. I'm productive in the mornings and, you know, after a good workout or something like that, I'm very productive. And I think those things drive me like being healthy so that then I can make informed decisions on projects and then trying to execute on those projects and then trying to find some downtime like some good downtime, whether it's meeting with friends or having a glass of wine or whatever it is to, to kind of wind down the day and then going back at it the next day. But the other thing is there's no Saturdays and Sundays for me. I do the same thing on Saturday, Sundays that I do on Monday, Tuesday. Yeah. So I'm not like TGIF. <laughs> that doesn't exist for me. And how do you deal with stress and managing stress, business stress, entrepreneurial stress, I'm sure all kinds of things go wrong on set and, you know, things fall through and, you know, the bottom drops out from underneath you and this kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, as a business owner and as a creative, how do you manage stress in your life in general? Yeah. I mean, one thing I'll say about like these, Emily wasn't expensive film, so it was very short and but you know, we had enough money, we made it, right? So it's one thing I like to tell people, it's like sprinting a marathon. Can you imagine sprinting a marathon? You kind of feel like you're going to die. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I felt I was going to die. 
was like, I'm going to probably die in this for sure. <laughs> yeah, fuck it. Like, let's just keep going because as long as we get it in the can, I maybe just resuscitate me near the end. And But no, it was like literally all stress at a 10 the whole way. Like, granted, it's my first film. So like, hopefully the future films would be a little bit more at an eight. But I think ultimately there's multiple reasons that was the case and it's it's not always that way but whatever that's what you deal with like you can't the other thing that's great and i think this is good to hear either other filmmakers or people listening or watching other films is that no one gives you a film and says yeah but remember day three we didn't have that kid for that long and so we weren't able to get that shot like no you just give them the film and they watch the film there's no asterisk on a scene you know, like remember when like there was nothing going right that day and like fucking like the electricity didn't work. Like no one gives a fuck. No one cares watching it. They're like, I just want it to be good, man. So you like you deal with all this stuff and you just can never tell the real story and or the drama behind whatever it is. And there's DVD sections of people that sometimes dive into that shit, but I wish they would really throw out like some like and I'm sure some shoots are amazing all the way through, but they're not. They're lying. Um and it's so much drama on so many other levels whether it's different, you know, staff that are dating and not dating anymore. And like, I don't get in any of that, thank God. But like, I find out after the fact, and that's, by the way, this is all fine. I don't judge it, but it's like, oh, I didn't know that they broke up in the middle of the shoot. And that's why I couldn't get so-and-so to show up on time anymore. And you're like, oh, okay. And like producers have to handle that shit. Cause like they have to shield you from it. Cause you just can't know. There was so much shit happening. I think behind the scenes on mine that I had blinders on. Like I was like one of those, like, you know, those, those horses in Central Park. And it's just like, just keep walking forward. Just keep going forward. Oh yeah. All that shit's like, all that shit's falling away. Like next, oh, yeah, I'm just keeping going forward. Hey, you want to keep coming with me? Yeah, sure. And my DP was amazing. He had to deal with some of the stuff, I guess that I didn't know. Um, but he was such a Luca, my DP, he was in like, they put like eight of them in the house. I felt like it was a fucking real world, probably in like, you know, one house, put eight production folk in one house for, for three weeks. What could go wrong? Well, they could all start dating and it's like super weird. And then they come to my set and I'm of course away from all that in my own little, little hotel room. And, and by no means is it fancy, but I mean, I'm purposely separated like, so I can just focus. So it becomes a thing, but it's okay. It's, it's what every, you know, everyone's going to deal with something. And I think, again, if you have good producers in place, they'll shield you from it and also like field a lot of that and juggle it. And then you'll get a film out of it. So my real creative philosophy on film, though, is making sure you do enough due diligence at the beginning with your key artists, which is like your DP and your production designer and your editors, that they all are on the same page because they're all going to add so much to it. But you just have to make sure that you communicate what you want and then they will make it better. Do you have, though, personal strategies for you? Like when something just goes way wrong or there's just a massive setback or some you know crazy thing, to not throw you off your game. Like you said, you have to keep moving forward. You have to get through it. You have to keep doing it. And when something happens and some crazy stuff befalls you, like do you have personal, like just internal strategies for your own stress management to allow you to keep performing at the level that you need to perform at, despite the fact that the ground may be crumbling underneath you? Right. <laughs> Ultimately, I think 
my stress relief is being around others that aren't doing what I do so that they can crack me up about their like shitty things in their life. <laughs> Let's be honest, right? Because we all want to hear about shitty things in other people's life. But I keep telling you how great this is. And you're like, fuck you, guy. Like, I don't care. I want to hear about the shit that stresses you out. So I'm like, ah, oh, I can relate, yeah. you know? And yeah. I think that's where we have a laugh because that's where we all can relate to. And, and so... The reason I say outside the industry is because then it becomes less incestuous and like then I'm it's not about apples to apples in terms of like then we just start to talk about the same thing over and over. So I love to hear how other entrepreneurs are suffering. Let's be honest. I'm sorry. I, I love your successes, people, but I love the suffering because we learn from suffering. We don't learn from our successes and maybe some people do. I don't. I learn from all of my failures or potential failures and actually doing like these 20 plus camera shoots where we have one take to capture like the best Paramore show over 21 pilots or whatever we're doing, like massive bands and like you get one take at it. I don't get a take two. I don't get to cry about I didn't get that shot. So when we get to the film set, I treat it somewhat similarly. Like, well, this is what we get. Like, this is, we just have to pivot. Like, I don't know. Maybe again, it goes back to my trading days. You just can't get too high or low. And so how do I deal with it? Maybe I internalize it and some therapist down the road, if you're out there, you're going to help me because I got a lot of shit build up back here. But uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, right now I internalize a lot of it. So it's really healthy. <laughs> All right. I want to, I want to circle back to some of the tactical kind of entrepreneurial questions in terms of how you built your team and built your company in a way that you don't actively have to, you know, participate in, in it on a day daily day. basis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you talk about that process? Yeah. 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 I think ultimately that process only starts from like a shit ton of work. So let's be, let's be upfront people that are listening to this for like, what's the, the tips for doing passive income. This isn't passive. This is like an enormous amount of years of work to understanding exactly how to choose a specialist so that your search can be short to the point and, and executed in a timely fashion to make a client happy. That only comes because I've been doing it for so long. This wasn't like something where I'm like, okay, I'll just read a resume and, oh, it looks like that resume is similar. I gotta, I have to have my bullshit meter at a 10 because everyone wants these jobs. I mean, not every single person, I don't, but a lot of people because it's a great job and these people are really special people. But so I sift through, you know, referrals and resumes and oh, I have, you know, HR team that helps too. And then they, when it finally gets to me, it's kind of like one of the final stages. And then I, you know, I, I, I normally like to see them either in person or virtually. And I want to just know, is this person for real? Like I can see someone's resume and talk to them and know exactly what part of that resume is real and what's not, literally in 30 seconds. And for a lot of people, it's real. But honestly, it's 50-50. I'll say that actually. And I don't mean that they're lying. I just mean that it's them trying to put out a persona that's less than what I need. I need the real deal. And then when I find the real deal, that's exciting. But I also have to make sure, do I like this person? Because is my team going to like them? You could be amazing, but if you're a pain in the ass, I don't know if that's like a great fit for my team. We're not a huge team. So then it's, I call it a culture fit. And it's like, you know, and the other thing is diversity. Diversity is very important to me. Like I have to interview people that are diverse, men, female, all kinds of different races. Like 
I make sure my HR and development people, like we have to bring in to me a diverse crowd, which is not the easiest to do sometimes, but it doesn't matter. We got to do it. And, and we like doing it because it's important to me. I guess maybe they don't like doing it, but they have to because I make it a requirement because I want everyone to have a chance. Can you talk about how you manage and run your company, manage your team, oversee everything that your company is doing from the other side of the world? You and I are in Lisbon, Portugal right now, and you travel the world and go to epic places and things like that. How do you do that and manage a distributed you know, team that's on another continent. Yeah, I think it's time management. Number one, you got to know what time zone you're in. You got to have um, you got to have a right hand person too. That's stateside. If you're running yourself in the states, or you need somebody that's your right hand person in the actual um, area of where you're doing your. If it's if it's going to be as you know twenty plus person, you got to have a local. I call them almost. They're almost like fixers. So like you need a local that's on their time zone that will work at your hours because that's their job is just to work at your hours. And I'm pretty cool with mine. Like I, I kind of actually still work on hours that are more applicable to my clients. And so that helps, you know, him out, but he needs to be on top of it. So number one is get a great assistant, get somebody that really knows what you're doing and is someone that's de- dependable. Again, if that's if you have your budget, if a budget to do it, but we're talking, I have 20 employees, so you better have an assistant. If you don't, then, then you're just, I don't know what you're doing. If you're location independent with no assistant and 20 people, it just sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. So you need a buffer and that buffer is a good assistant. How to find a good assistant? I don't know. That's another podcast, but like find it. I found it. Uh, I've got a great one that's both creative and logistical. And and lean on him or her. And that's what I do. I lean on him or her and I check in with my key members of the team to making sure that almost, you know, weekly and then with the rest of the team quarterly right now. But this was all a progression. That's the other thing, people. This wasn't day one turnkey. This is how it is. It was like I was there full time every single day making sure the team is doing okay. And then now I've got it to the point in the last like year or so, or maybe a little bit over that, that I'm not there every day, but I also, but I do care and I want to check in, but the client also doesn't want you there all the time. So you have to also be careful that you don't overstep and start over managing certain aspects, at least from my standpoint. And yeah, I think those are the tips I would give people is, is time management, making sure you have someone local that's a go-to that can do a lot of different things for you when needed. And then checking in with the key core elements on a, you know, a timely basis. So nothing gets too far away from you. Awesome. All right, Michael, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? Yes, let's let's give it a shot. Let's do it. All right. The lightning round. First question, what is one book that you would recommend that has perhaps influenced you over the years that you'd recommend people check out? Yeah, I would say um, Jordan Peterson, probably Dr. Jordan Peterson, I should probably call him, 12 Rules for Life has really been the most impactful book recently for me. I think all of his stuff actually is very impactful from a manager standpoint, not just from a life standpoint. He's really taught me, not personally, by the way, just by 
researching him and listening to him. But 12 Rules for Life from Jordan, Dr. Jordan Peterson has probably been the most influential thing on me from both personal but also a professional standpoint. Awesome. What is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you'd recommend other people check out? So the app that I use the most and probably the most important to me is the Google schedule. Everyone communicates to me that way. I'm able to see what my day's looking like, my future days are looking like, and do my time management through my Google schedule app. So without that, I'm kind of lost and I would have no idea which day, time zone, or whatever I'm on. So definitely I would say the Google schedule app would be number one app I would use from a efficiency standpoint. Awesome. If you, now you've been to over 20 countries and you're continuing to travel a good bit now, let me just ask you, first of all, before I ask you for your top destinations, let me just ask you why you travel. What do you get out of traveling the world in general? What does travel mean to you? So traveling to me is the number one thing that lets me really appreciate life. I wish I knew more languages and like a a true American, I don't know many, but what I am good at is watching behavior. And so going to all these countries and watching people behave in certain ways, there's definitely a through line to everyone. I don't care if you're American or you're you know, from Portugal or from Brazil or Australian, you're definitely unique in, in certain aspects, but there's a similarity there too. And so I am a culture freak. I love just immersing myself in a certain culture to just to hear their comedy, the way they speak, the way they fight, the way they do a lot of things, especially from an emotional standpoint. And again, I think there's similarities to everyone, but Ultimately, travel allows me to feel like I'm actually telling a story that's accurate. It's awesome. What would be your top three favorite travel destinations that you've ever been to? The top three travel destinations that I've ever been to would be Fiji, Australia, and I would say this Lisbon. Lisbon has been very impressive. I liked Australia because I loved the mentality that the East Coast had when I was traveling. And just, I loved the comedy in terms of like the way that their culture handled certain things. And then Lisbon is just, it feels like it's Paris 20 years ago, you know, or Copenhagen 10 years ago. It's like, it's on the cusp of something big. And then Fiji was just really relaxing and chill and got a lot of things going on there that I found very relaxing. So it was one of my more relaxing places. Awesome. So I now want to ask you about your bucket list travel destinations that are at the tippy top of your list. You'd most like to be most excited about seeing what are your top three bucket list travel destinations you have never been to? Asia. Asia is probably bucket list in terms of where in Asia. I'm not sure yet. I think there's probably a lot of places, but I haven't really explored it at all. So I'm very open-minded to places that I should go there. And I would love to explore the Greek islands. I've heard amazing things about that. And I would say third thing would be, I think Dubai sounds pretty amazing. You know, I've never been in just that area. I mean, whether it's all manufactured from scratch, that's kind of crazy. So... I'd love to see what it looks like. Awesome. Awesome. Michael, well, it's been incredible having you on the show, my man. I want you to tell folks how they can get a hold of you and follow you on social media and learn more about the incredible projects that you're up to, see your film, I mean, everything. 
Yeah, I mean, you could check out Emily on Netflix now. I think they are giving it another run. Emily is E-M-E-L-I-E. Even if you loved it or hated it, just hashtag it and make a comment on Twitter. I love reading that. And I would say that's pretty much it. I mean, there's michaelthielen.com and you can always reach me via that or at least somebody that will get the email and send it to me uh, as long as it's a nice one. Um, And if, yeah, and if you don't like the stuff that, you know, you see, keep it to yourself. It's all good. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Love it. Michael, thank you so much for being here, my man. It has been a pleasure. All right. See ya. Thanks, man. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.